Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Ziad Dadul. For those of you that love this podcast, please take 30 seconds and leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to the YouTube channel. This helps the show get discovered organically and helps me continue to bring on amazing guests. There's also now timestamps in the show notes, so feel free to jump around to the part that interests you most, although I always recommend listening to the episode in its entirety. Ziad Dadul is a doctor of physical therapy, board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist, functional range and conditioning mobility specialist, and ACL rehab expert. He is personally responsible for helping jiu-jitsu phenom Cole Abate return to sport following his partial tear last year. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, Ziad Dadul. Well, Ziad, thank you so much for taking the time to be here as a, a fellow coach, as someone who works with athletes and getting people back into the sports that they love. I know your schedule is packed, so carving the time out of your schedule means a lot to me, and I've really been looking forward to bringing this conversation to the listeners. No, likewise, Abe. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on your platform. I mean, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and uh, consumed some of your content. You do great work, and you put on a lot of great stuff, man, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, we'll we'll jump in. You know, I I do like to hop right in the deep end, and I'm going to throw somewhat of a complex question at you, but I'm curious to see where it takes us. And that is, how do you get a grappler back into the sport given its complexity? And we can yeah. take that from the view of you know any injury maybe that you want to choose, but I I just know that this is something that so many practitioners deal with, where they are the thing that they love to do is taken away from them. They're confused about how to get back. They don't have the resources that a high-level athlete may have. And how do you work alongside that? What should they be thinking about to find a way back into the thing that they love to do so much? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and like you know, you know, like, like anybody else, I mean, it's very multifactorial in nature, right? So there's a lot of factors that go into it. And I think the first step is figuring out sort of what the tissue responds the best to and figuring figuring out what the tissue responds the worst to. So we, we spend a lot of time the first couple of weeks after an injury or um, trying to figure out what it is that put, creates the most stress on an injury. So the example would be the one that we see a lot that I've seen a lot lately. I have been MCL and LCL sprains, right? So we see a lot of that in mm -hmm. jujitsu, see a lot of that with grapplers. And so the idea is, is that anytime you, you throw a valgus or a varus moment on the knee where the knee caves in, the knee gets bowed out, and it, with overpressure with somebody's body weight or whatever, that's a lot of stress that the tissue has to tolerate. And so for us yeah. as physios, like our, our main job is to basically get the tissue to calm down and then recreate its ability to handle load by building up its capacity because we know when they get back on the mats, there's going to be enormous amounts of loads and demand being placed on it. So we try to do the best job we can in our, our four walls to recreate some of those demands and that some of that is on our end testing the non-injured side. So like we'll do a lot of isometric testing with a gauge that we use. Um, it's like a dynamometer that actually tells us like how much force that somebody can output uh, on a certain, in a certain wow. direction, whether it's quad tammies, whatever it is. And so we'll actually get like raw data to be able to figure out like if your injured side and your non-injured side are similar, like that will give us a lot of like really immediate information. If we see like a 30% deficit on one side to the other, that answers a lot of our questions when it comes to whether they're, they're able to tolerate load. So I'll throw somebody on like in a seated position and have them like push in and out, like for example, at their hips. And if they can push inwards 
100, they have 100 pounds on one side and then the injured side only 40 pounds, I know they're going to have a hard time loading that MCL, LCL, whatever it is that the injury is. So that right. gives us a lot of immediate information and we can kind of like use that to help recreate the demands in, in our four walls to get them back on the maps. Hello, friends. Please let me take a minute to share my experience about why I love my sponsor, AG1. I started taking AG1 because I believe that health starts on the cellular level and believe that gut health is as important as brain health. Between surfing, strength training, jiu-jitsu, striking, and running through businesses, I need every leg up I can manage. That's why I drink AG1 every morning before starting my day, and it makes me feel confident that no matter what happens, I've done a solid for myself and my well-being. As you may know, I'm a creature of habit, and adding AG1 to my daily regimen is an easy-to-do, tasteful hack that gives me assurance that I'm building my health 365 days a year. So if you want to take ownership over your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com A-B-E. That's drinkag1.com A-B-E. Check it out and take advantage of the offer. So you hear a lot of times when people are coming back from injury, it one thing that they express as a concern consistently is this side will never be like that side again, right? Or uh, this shoulder, it'll just never, I'll never be able to hit my hockey stick like I do, like I used to, or my golf swing is just never going to be the same. So when you're looking at bringing someone back, it, and this could be true for any sport, um, and you're talking about this idea of symmetry, of getting these joints to operate the same or get the muscles to contract the same, produce the same amount of power, what is a, a margin of discrepancy that you're kind of like, I can green light that. Like, it's okay that this isn't exactly like the other one. You know, you can go back, you can play, you can experience what this feels like, you can roll at 75%. At, at what point is that enough? And how much are you trying to manage as they get back into the things that they love to do? No, I mean, that's a great question. And that's one that we hear a lot, like you said. And so I think what we have learned based on the literature that's available for return to sport testing, I'll speak more for the lower extremities because that's kind of what we have a lot more data for. You know, what we know is that 90% is sort of that like bare minimum that we want to see from a symmetry standpoint of the injured side versus the non-injured side. And, but, and when I say 90%, I mean 90% like just brute strength, force output, ability to tolerate like, you know, um, you know, vertical and horizontal displacement with jumping and plyos, like those kinds of things. We want to see somewhere 90%. From my standpoint, a lot of it is I'm a big believer in like under promising and over delivering and being very realistic and setting yes. expectations with a lot of our people. And so we'll set the expectation, not that we'll set it low on purpose, but the idea is, is that we're going to set an expectation and a reasonable time frame because I want them to experience the wins along the way, knowing that I've created buy and allowed them to get back to it because I know when they're compliant and they're 100% on board with what we're trying to do, the outcomes are just so much better. So that's kind of another one from the psychological standpoint that we kind of push through. And then I think the last piece of it is, is letting them know that like what you're going to do on the mats is not supposed to be symmetric. If you think about it, you lead yeah. with one leg when you're standing more than with, with the other, yeah. when you're in, when you're playing guard, you're using one leg, one arm more than you use the other. It's just, it's human nature that we have a little bit more of a bias towards our, whether it's our dominance on our more comfortable side and motor control, whatever it is. And so letting them know that sometimes a little bit of asymmetry is okay. As long as those asymmetries are complementing each other in a way that allows you to perform at your best on the maps. I, I think always when I, when I talk about this kind of stuff of uh, like high level Olympic weightlifters, because if you look at like the snatch and the clean and jerk on a, 
on a national level or, or maybe a global level, some of these guys have very peculiar discrepancies that if you're looking at them on kind of a ground floor level, right, like you're teaching someone basic barbell mechanics, you would stray so far away from these because they would create problems, right? But then you look at the athletic uh, performance of some of these athletes, and it's actually a service to them more than a detriment. So they're utilizing this asymmetry to their advantage in a unique way that another athlete just can't take advantage of. And that's in a very, you know, Olympic weightlifting is such a confined sport because it's, it's two lifts. It's, it's either weights on the bar or it's not. You can or you cannot do it. Jiu-jitsu, grappling, striking, Muay Thai, these are very complex, multi-planar, crazy uh, sports where the demand is constantly changing because unlike a barbell that's loaded and fixed, my opponent may increase the pressure against me. They may change levels on me, and then I'm forced to respond to that. So now you're taking uh, asymmetries that play to your advantage, but then you're adding this external force that you cannot predict in a way that you could predict other sports. When you're bringing someone back from an injury that uh, stems from grappling, combat sports, something like that, how do you help them get the confidence back that they're going to be able to go in there and when this guy shoots on them, they're going to be able to sprawl and place all the pressure into the toes on an instant and not worry uh, that their body's going to fail them in that instance. Yeah, there's, there's an old saying that it's you know, failure to prepare is preparing to fail, right? So like if you're, if we're not doing a high level or a high amount of reactive based movements or reactive based drills when they're with us in our, you know, when they're actually uh, rehabbing and training with us, then we're not preparing them for their sport. The weightlifting is a perfect example. It's pre-planned, completely controlled by the athlete and it's a fixed resistance. So that it's never going to change yeah. and you have control over that versus when you're rolling on the mat with somebody or you're sparring with somebody, you have no idea what that person's going to do. You can do as much prep work as you possibly can, but yet yeah. that person's going to change things based off of the advantages that they see in front of them. So we try to do as much reactive work as we possibly can. And that can be as simple as like incorporating something like a blaze pod and adding a cognitive task to make them think and dual task on multiple things while we're having them doing a physical demand or having them do reactive work based off of our cues where they have to use auditory cues where they you know, think about like you're on the mats and you're, you're playing guard, you're listening to your coach. As, some, as you're trying to gain an advantage with somebody on the mats, it's the same thing. If I'm calling out a cue for somebody to do something, they're doing a physical um, a physical movement or some sort of action, exercise. And if I, they have to also respond to me and pay attention to me, that's kind of very similar to what they're going to have to do in competition as well. So I feel like a lot of what gets missed is there's no level of reactivity and throwing a lot of spontaneity at the person while they're actually doing their rehab and training. Yeah, I've, I felt like since my time starting training as a professional career and then, uh, you know, meeting colleagues and stuff in adjacent industries on the, the prehab side, the rehab side, the post-surgery return to sports side, uh, from the hobbyist to the professional athlete. It's really dawned on me that if you zoom out, I, I really think that the scope of training has to change to really incorporate PT is actually an like an element of your training, not something that you do when things go wrong, but something that you do to keep them from going wrong. And when I started in my own training to start to implement um, like reactive hamstring exercises, for example, that maybe in the past I would see in a soccer preparation program and thinking about like, oh, you know, if I'm trying to shoot a triangle on someone and clamp my hamstring down on behind their neck and they posture up, 
my hamstring has to respond to that, to my knee extending, right? And when I thought about it like that, I'm like, this needs to be a pretty big chunk of my training if I'm being realistic, because now my output in on the mats is high. So that's the high intensity version of what I'm doing. Yes, I need strength. Absolutely. It's very important. And I think everyone needs to incorporate that. But it's almost like the PT exercises are these things that are like hidden behind this door that no one gets to see unless they go to surgery. And then they come out of there and they're like, man, they, they had like a blood flow restriction thing strapped around my leg and I was doing all this stuff and it was so hard. And I'm like, yeah, but that's, we need that in the commercial setting. That's what we actually should be doing to prevent you from blowing your knee out when you're doing a sissy squat or tearing your LCL because someone passed your guard and you tried to open your knees up. How do you think that these two worlds start to continually come together and you see more of kind of what you guys are doing in this specialized setting kind of bleed into more general population, commercial gym setting, uh, kind of outside of CrossFit, but maybe in that gray area? Well, you know, I, it's a great point, man. And I think like conversations like we're having right now between disciplines, you know, our you know, social media and a lot of people putting out really good information that's, you know, I know it's hard sometimes to be able to discern what's good and what's not, but putting out really yeah. good, valuable information out there. I think for me, when I created Ignite and started this kind of, you know, started the model that we have, I went to where I, I kind of met my athletes where they are. I went to where they train. And so we have, we, our locations are all inside of training facilities and gyms. So for me, that's nice. the easiest way to bridge the gap between the two is to just go where they are and create an ecosystem and a space for them to be able to go to, to have a resource. So I think like where you talked earlier about like how we can get to a point where we can help the athlete feel like, well, my, you know, my knee's never going to feel the same. My my shoulder's never going to feel the same. Well, chronicity of injury is a big part of that. And you know, as well as I do, a lot of jujitsu athletes, grapplers, MMA athletes, they wait forever to take care of something. They only take care of it until it stops them from being able to be on the mats. They don't do yeah. it. They're not proactive with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I I think we're all, and we're all guilty of it yeah. at times. So what we did is we decided, like, let's just go where they're at. And we're a resource for them where if they are training and they tweak something in the moment, like, come over and see us real quickly. Sometimes it's as quick as a 10-minute conversation. Show them a couple of correctives and send them on their way, and then we don't see them for a while. And it's good. and it's in a good way because we, we don't want to see people on a consistent basis unless we're doing the things that you're talking about where it's like maintenance, prehab, staying on top of things, giving them a kind of rehabby, mobility-type program that they can do on their own. I've always felt like it's a little bit of a broken system. The And, and for understandable reason, because when you really think about it, the – the average person training athletically isn't the oldest idea in the world, right? It's, it's fairly new. I mean, you have even the ability to go in a gym and see like a bumper plate, you know, used to be reserved yeah. exclusively for athletic training facilities. Now you see that more in the general setting and you're starting to see people think about what do I really want to be? I don't just want to be a bodybuilder. We can all kind of accept that outside of the aesthetic, there's really not a functionality to that. And just look to any sport, right? There's every athlete is built to their position. You look at basketball players look different and act different than linemen that act different than slot receivers that are different than UFC fighters. Look at the UFC today versus 15, 20 years ago, right? They all look like Chuck Liddell. Now they look <laughs> extremely specific to their weight class because mm -hmm. they are training their body mechanically and athletically to perform at a very specific type of exercise. And because of that, 
you know, I think that the general population looks up to athletes in any regard. It's a, a motivator to train. And I feel like hope that si the system needs to evolve continually to be more like what you guys are doing, where you go to your gym to train, but if and when you need something, it's right there for you. It's not another phone call, another hoop to jump through with your insurance, another referral to someone who has no idea what you're doing. The fact that an athlete can come in like Cole and meet with you and you get his sport, that is so unique to actually be able to understand what he's going through and then just take it from there, right? Most times people get paired up with someone who's in their network. They go, the person has no idea what they do or they've never experienced it on a, on a personal level. And then they, they go to help them, but it's really just so they can collect the insurance and get them back on their way. Mm -hmm. How did you guys start to disrupt that part of this industry with Ignite? I, I think awareness is a big part of it, man, like community outreach. So the old model in PT is you go to the surgeon, you go to the doctor, they're the gatekeepers, they send people your way, and that's how you get patients. And like with our model, because we are not insurance based, we're kind of out of pocket, out of network, we're like away from the traditional healthcare system. The people that are going to kind of want to vibe with us and work with us are the ones that are more forward thinking, more proactive, see things differently. They, they think outside the box. They don't want to just go to where their insurance tells them. So we do a lot of community outreach. Like I can't even tell you, man, in my first two years of business, the amount of times I was out doing workshops and seminars and mobility workshops and uh, just getting out there and doing events and giving away content giving away education for free because that's the way that you're going to change things on a grander level. If there's more people like us that are just willing to give with no expectation to return, because eventually you know that the payoff is going to be down the line with a change system and a change mentality with how we do things. And like Cole's a great example because he was going somewhere else for three months and he mm -hmm. felt exactly what you were just describing. He was going to a place, didn't get his sport, didn't get his injury, was not sports, sports specific or athlete driven, was just kind of mom and pop. And you look around and if you see people that don't look like you, at your rehab facility, at your strength and conditioning gym, wherever it is, if they don't look like you and, and move like you, you're probably not in the right place. You want to be yeah. around people who are going to see things the way you see things in the way that allows you to be able to lend, like, you know, lend their expertise to help you benefit from what you need to do. And like, that's my favorite part of the job is being able to take somebody's sport and recreate the demands of their sport, take basic strength and conditioning and PT principles and just have fun with it and create things that allow us to be able to stress tissue in a way that is really resonates well with that athlete. Maybe we can uh, hang out here on, on Cole for a second and you can talk a little bit about what was that um, the intake process like with someone like him? How do you familiarize yourself with the demands of a sport like that and really get into it, kind of the nitty gritty of what he's doing on yeah. a day-to-day -day basis? And then how do you balance that? Because Cole's a unique example in that he is a world-class competitor. He's a phenom, right? He's young, so he's his body is capable of naturally recovering at a fair rate, right? It's not like he's a 40-year-old guy trying to stay on the mats. Uh, so he's in the thick of it. He's extremely talented, but he also doesn't really have the time to waste to not be competing for a year. He can't be out... Uh, you know, completely out of the game while other people that are equally talented are just rocketing by. Right. And jujitsu yeah. is a time-based activity. You have to constantly be training and practicing and building that intuitive awareness and body mechanics. So what's the process like? Uh, maybe you can talk about that initial kind of setting with him as well as what his injury was and then what you guys did to tackle that because he goes back out and he wins, right? 
And then he gets promoted like twice in record time. I mean, it's such a good example in my eyes of someone taking an injury head on, assessing it with the right kind of people, with the right kind of professionals who value him and understand his sport, and then getting him back out onto the mats and not being afraid of that process coming to a temporary end. Yeah, so I, I would say like the beginning, the, the evaluation stage with Cole was he had a partial ACL tear. So it was, it was like, a, again, it's almost impossible to know what percent without actually going into the joint and kind of seeing, but he had a partial ACL tear. Um, and really for him, the main thing was getting an idea of like what he was struggling with. So a lot of that first uh, session with him, that evaluation was a lot of just talking and like, getting an idea of like, yeah. he knows his body. Like you said, elite athletes know their body better than anybody. So he knows what right. it was like pre-injury. He knows what it's like post-injury. So really a lot of it was helping me understand what sort of like pain points and limitations he was having. So he was having pain, but that wasn't his big limiter. His big limiter was he had a really difficult time balancing on one leg and being able to bear all his weight on the side that he had the ACL tear because you're losing some of the stability of the joint. It makes it very difficult to be able to control things on that one leg. And so right. really for me, he helped me understand things a lot because I am not a lifelong jujitsu where I have learned a lot working with people like Cole and help, and they helped me understand. So it was as simple as like the first couple of sessions, we were on the ground together and I was the person he was sparring with and he was showing me position. And I'm like, show me what, right. what your struggle is. Show me what this looks like. Let me see it. Let me feel it. Let me get an idea of where you're coming from. And then you combine yeah. that where we kind of took the time to be able to, and that's the part of the benefit for us is we spend an hour with everybody. So like I have the time yeah. to be able to sit there on the, on, on get, to get on the turf and just do all this stuff with him. But then we combine that with more of our traditional return to sport testing. And I get an idea of how strong are your quads? How strong are your hamstrings? Where is your soleus? How strong are your adductors? Like we tested everything to get raw data points behind that as well. Because when you put those two things together, there's a big power behind that. And so like with him yes, and like with a lot of other jujitsu athletes, I like scaling return to sport. So like I don't like taking a sport away from somebody if I don't have to take it away from them or if we don't have to make that decision based on like tissue healing. So in his case, he still continued to do things. He still continued to, to roll and to drill and to do stuff. I just basically told him like you need to be able to know what that RPE scale is on a zero to ten scale, how intense you're going, yeah. what that intensity level is. And let's stay in this range because you've already demonstrated that that range is okay for the knee. And so that's how we allowed him to continue to do the things to allow him to be intuitive is that he still rolled, he still drilled, he still did all the things on the mats. We just brought some of the intensity down a little. When you're taking an injury like that, is uh, with a partial tear, is that based on an MRI? Based on an MRI and based on clinical okay. testing, yeah. Okay, so you're getting hard data that says this is exactly where we're at. And then with this, I like what you said about not taking it away from the athlete. I feel like that's a really important part, whether you're a hobbyist or a professional, is being able to believe that it's still going to be part of your life. And sometimes when you have to completely sideline, you feel that slipping away, and that can be have some sort of mental effect. You know, it's going to scale differently for each person. But yeah. with someone like Cole, how do you how do you get him to do that? How do you uh, say, hey, we're going to prioritize your ACL reconstruct or recovery here? but I want you to still explore in training. What does that actually look like for someone like him? Yeah. So I think what we did with him was we said, you're going, you're only going to spar with belts that are below you because you're still going to work on things. You're still going to work on some, some of the demands, but you're, you're going to spar with people who are not going to be heavier than you, more physically imposing than you who are, who are, who are skilled enough to know how to control their bodies. And, you know, cause a lot of times if you work with somebody who's either new to new to a sport or has a hard yeah. time controlling what they're doing, you don't want that. like you don't, you don't want to yep. put them in that situation. So like, and he's again, Cole, he was born to do this. The kid is 
responsible for this as possible. Like, I mean, he's just, he's an impressive yeah. man at this point. He's amazing. And like, so he knows how to put himself in a, put himself in a position to know when to pull back. So we kind of tried to control as much of the controllable stuff as we possibly can, putting him in situations where he's still allowed to go work on things and do things, but not be put in harm's way by allowing him to compete right. at other gyms or like with, you know, do competitions that he didn't need to do. So we took time off from certain competitions. And and we had our kind of end goal was ADCC at the time when, yep. when we were training together. ADCC was the goal. So we're like, look, let's not put you in a position where you have to worry about anything. Well, let's pick some some comps that are going to be really good for you to allow you to prepare and be ready for what you need to do. I really like that. It, when you when you train jujitsu, it, it, there's <laughs> it's funny, like how ego can just get involved in different parts. But when with someone like him who's such a high level competitor like you said the ADCC was the goal right it's not like competing in the local jiu jitsu world league tournament was the goal it the goal is the biggest stage in the sport arguably right so when you think about it like that um and i think this is where the hobbyist struggles actually and and i also think that this is true where the hobbyist struggles in any sport if you are uh indoor soccer adult league player or if you play in a you know a recreational meetup for tennis at your country club or something like that i think it's almost harder for that person to regulate their own intensity while they're trying to recover than it is for someone like cole because he can step in the academy and go look i'm only training with these five people and i'm not training with anyone that's heavier than me and we're doing positional rolling that's how i'm going to get to adcc right there's big things in the horizon that's how we're going to get there the person who like does the weekly meetup and or, or that's their social circle or it's this meaning part of their life that uh, they meet up, you know, two to three times a week and you're trying to reintegrate them. They have such a hard time at staying on the shy side of intensity because they get there. It feels good. They have their friends around them and then all of a sudden they're going, you know, they're 90 percent and the RP scale doesn't even work for them because they've never even used it before. And yeah. so this is where I, I think these conversations are so important for the general hobbyist because that's who this needs to apply to. When you get injured in jujitsu, if you tweak your neck, if you tweak your thoracic spine, if your lumbar is flaring up, if your knees are tweaked, you have to respect how you converse and choose your training partners because things like – and actually, I, I'd love to get your opinion on this. When you're talking about a joint, so let's say – uh, hip aggravation or impingement, uh, knee is a great one because there's so much knee flexion extension in jiu-jitsu. Definitely cervical spine stuff. Would you say that regulating the weight of your opponent uh, is going to be the, the second most important thing to skill? Or what do you think is it like, what should people be considering when they're trying to make the right choice about who and how to train? when they come back. Cause I mean, this is something even I struggle with, right? I get in there and I'm like, I'm ready to go. Where do you put those things? Height, weight, speed, skill, maybe anything else that comes to mind. I mean, I think skill is the most important because you want to be with people who you trust their judgment and you trust their ability to do things. Like if you're, if you're going to try to manage an injury with a white belt, who's three weeks in, it's going to be very difficult for that person to know what they're doing. Like they don't, they don't really have that, that yeah. ability to kind of like manage that threshold. Right. Yeah. So, I think that's number one. Number two is it's kind of a tie between height and weight. I think height is really important and size is really important. Like I would rather go with somebody a little heavier if they're the right like body type, because it's easy for me to be like, look, if your knee's an issue, 
I don't want you having somebody who's a little bit bigger and huskier and you're trying to use your leg to kind of manage being around them when maybe I'd rather you be somebody with a little heavier, but who's a little bit more slim and tall because it allows you to manipulate their body position a little easier for you. If range of motion is an issue, something along those lines. So that would be like height and weight kind of go back and forth for me. I think the main thing for me is the ability to be able to have a conversation with the person you are sparring with beforehand set an expectation of like what we are trying to accomplish. Like, look, my shoulder is an issue right now. I'm like halfway into my rehab. I can't, I can't get into a position where I'm being armbarred. I can't get into a position where my arm is behind me. So if you start to feel like you're moving in that direction, let's start off by erring on the side of caution. If you have that one minute conversation beforehand, I think that that communication solves a lot of things going into it. So I think like being able to have a conversation with the person is probably up there with all of the other physical attributes that go along with it. Such a hard part of it, man. I, 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 I struggle with this, you know, through my injuries of, of had like a pop cartilage recently. I've had cervical issues from stingers and stuff like that from trying to learn how to wrestle at 34. Uh, <laughs> and I go in there and it's just, it's, it is hard. I think that two of the things you said are really important. It's almost that the skill level and the communication become two of the most important things because you can have a good communication with someone who doesn't have the skill and they can nod and say yes and get it. And the reality is they don't have the skill to do what you're asking them to do anyway. So they are only going to, if, if it takes eight positions to protect your shoulder and I only know four and you, you and I talk about it and I go, yeah, cool. I got you. And then I can only use four tools. We're destined to fail. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're a high or high skilled enough, and I'm comfortable enough with my injury and we had this conversation beforehand. And then you actually possess the skill to manage that. I was going with someone today and they're right before we started, they're like, Hey, my shoulder, which, uh, to be honest, I don't think that's the best kind of communication. I think a little bit more of like, <laughs> what about your shoulder? <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but I know now in the role to check the ego and I'm willing to lose position so that their shoulder doesn't get involved. And that's a very unique thing. I think that someone like Cole, for example, is going to be able to do with a few people, but not the whole academy, right? Because AOJ is huge. They got tons of athletes. And like you Mm -hmm. said, there are plenty of people on the lower side of skill level. When you look to other sports, if you're helping, uh... see, I think it's easier in other sports though, because like a soccer player, they just tell their coach, right? And now the coach makes them not do sprints or they're not going to cut or they're not going to strike the ball. So it, it almost is maybe thinking out loud, uh, a unique problem to grappling it's or funny combat that you sports. That because I just had this conversation with an ACL athlete last night who's a, fo- who's a soccer player and she's a high school soccer player. And it's the same thing. It's like, look, our return to sport for that is you do 1v0 stuff and you just get comfortable with the ball and you, and you start working on those yep. things and then you do 1v1 and then you're going to do 3v3 and then you're going to do rondos and then, and then 11 on 11, but you're going to wear a non-contact jersey where they can't slide tackle. They can't, they can't get their shoulder into you. They can't create contact. And then you do that for a little while and then you take the jersey off. And then you, there's a lot of things that you could do to manipulate it. You're only going to do 20 minutes and then you're going to be off. Like jujitsu is hard to do that with. Like you can't, just yeah. be on the mats for 10 minutes and then okay, I'm going to take a break for 10 minutes and I'm going to go sit on the side and then jump back in and expect to jump back back into place. Like it's very difficult. So I think, I think you make a great point when it comes to, there are very specific demands on uh, of the jujitsu athlete that are kind of different than other sports. But I do think there is a level of controllability of the other person. If like we talking about, if you're choosing the right training partner and reminding mm-hmm. each other 
that 99 times out of 100, when you're on the mats doing things, you're doing it with a partner who's at the same gym and a teammate of yours. So you right. have the same goals in the long run. You're not trying to win ADCC on a Wednesday night at right. you know at your local <laughs> jiu-jitsu studio. You know, yeah. like like you are you're there for the same reasons. You're there because you love the sport. So I think that the the selectivity of who you're rolling with is just as important as everything else. I'm I'm now just thinking about kind of the hobbyists here, and this is it goes back again to a little bit of like just my qualm with the way care is set up for people. Um, be that with healthcare or their available options. I mean, you know, not every town, unfortunately, has like an Ignite that they can go to. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely something around here that I've, you know, I've tried to establish somewhat of a network over the last three years of living down in Encinitas. And it, it has its challenges, right? Like you can get a referral, but really the referral is based on tenure and it's not based on, on skill and how many ap- athletes they've returned to sport, let alone your sport. So if we do a pretend case study here on John Doe, the jujitsu guy. You go into training, everything's fine. You tweak your neck or you tweak your knee or you tweak your ankle. You, you're laid on a tap in a submission. Your elbow gets hyperextended. And you, you're not a trainer for a living. You're not a physical therapist. You've never worked with a PT before. You've never had the luxury of working with a trainer before. You're just someone who picked up jujitsu and, and you love it. And it's a part of your mental health. It's a part of your week. What should that person do? What are kind of the right steps to determine the severity of their injury? Find someone like yourself, if that's the right call. Like, how do they get back to the sport as quick as possible, given the available channels that most people have? I think step one, like when you talk about the severity of the injury, it's unless it's an obvious catastrophic type thing. I think we know a lot of times when those things do occur. But, you know, getting an idea of the severity of the injury is getting an idea of, like, how irritable things are. So, like, is this affecting my ability to put weight on it if it's a lower body injury? Can I not raise my arm and carry a coffee cup on a daily basis for a day or two afterwards? Like, and is it getting better over a couple of days? We have this rule that we use with a lot of our athletes called the 24-hour soreness rules. And the idea is, is you think about an activity that you did, like, let's say today, and over the next 24 to 36 hours, does your body get back to at your baseline before that activity or better? And I think using that as a general rule of thumb is a good Mm. starting off point. Because if I think about how I feel today and then I go to AOJ later today and then I tweak my back and then I wake up tomorrow and I'm fine and I feel like I did before I went to AOJ, I'm not going to trip about it. I'm not going to worry about it because that's going to happen at times. You're going to be, when you're competing with high level athletes, you're going to have moments where you get your your tissue is stressed to a point where it gives you an actual physical response. So that's step one is like not freaking out, like letting the adrenaline go away, getting a feel for where the dust settles after everything goes away for a couple of days. And then I think step two is like leverage your community. You have a community of people there that are doing the same things that you're doing. Chances are one of them has dealt with something that they've had to go seek out outside help for. So I would start in that in your house and I would look at your your network outside the facility of trusted people that have had, that have had to have encounters with the medical system in some way, shape or form. So I think those are like the first two places I would go. And I think the last place is I would go online. I would not go to Web, WebMD and YouTube, like stop diagnosing yourself. I would not recommend yeah. that. But You'll I would have go cancer. <laughs> you're going to have, you're either going to have that. Do you, you remember a show called House MD? Yeah. With a, all TV. Man, what's that name? Super Lori, addicting, what? binge worthy. Yeah. yeah. So the running joke from watching that show is like everybody had lupus and everybody needed interferon. <laughs> 
That was it. Because every single person <laughs> that they had had one of those two things. So, but that's yeah. that's kind of what ends up happening when you like seek out stuff like that. So, like, but I would go online and actually look to see what resources are available in your area. Like, like you know, search sports physical therapists, search physical th- like search the things that matter at the end of the day in terms of like being as specific as possible. Chances are something is going to pop up that is relatively comparable if you don't have those any any leads um, in those first few ways of looking at things. You know, I think about uh, just, man, I mean, you could use a high school uh, athlete center as an example. You could use a, any kind of professional sports team. Just this, the circle of care that's available, like how awesome that is. You know, you're an athlete. You're out on the field. You're playing. You you get hit from the side. You go down. You're freaked out. They send you to the PT. PT takes you to the PT room. They run a couple of stress tests. They try to determine to the best of their ability where things are at. Then you go and you work with someone. It's like everything is in this system because they're incentivized to get the athlete back on the field to play so they yeah. can make money, right? But just that system, the way things work there, I know that that's an isolated professional athlete setting and not everyone going into their local jiu-jitsu academy or wrestling club or Muay Thai kickboxing academy uh, is has even remote goals of being professional. But that idea of how things work, I, f- I think is what, a person should adopt is like I've I've been hurt. You run a scale like what you just said. I love that. The, the like the twenty four hour revolving cycle is this getting better? Is it going in the worst direction? Because regardless of skill, everyone intuitively can decide that. You know, yeah. if you wake up the next day and you're like, "Ooh, I think I need Advil." If that's the first thought, it's worse than it was before, right? So For very sure. simple test you can run. But then taking those next steps instead of what you see so many times. You'll be sitting there before class, and someone's like, "My fucking shoulder's still messed up," and you're like, "You're and you're about to, you're about to get on the mat." Yeah, I, I'll feel it out. But you know that what they mean is they're just going to train, and then hopefully it doesn't get hurt more. And, and this <laughs> yeah. keeps happening, and then eventually, because this is a crazy activity, boom, something happens, and now you're really laid up. Now it's not your choice anymore about how you handle it. Now you have to go to the doctor and follow these steps. And so getting getting people into a mindset where you kind of need to think about yourself like a professional athlete, even though you're not one, because the activities that you're choosing to like to do are extremely athletic in nature, even at the novice level. Absolutely. And and I think that's where it it gets a little difficult to find it. Like you said, it's not accessible for a lot of people in, in their communities in person. I think like with the model that we have at Ignite, we 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 understand the importance of that like professional team model so like our model allows me or any of our therapists to say hey i'm gonna go with you to your doctor's appointment when is it let me see if i have time on my schedule hey schedule it at this time and i i go with them to their surgeon's appointments especially when they're post-op and i help give you know how it works when you tell an athlete like this is what i want you to tell your surgeon they get there it's like playing telephone it sounds nothing like what you told them totally and and on totally. the flip side, doctors and surgeons, admittedly, they'll tell you firsthand, they don't read notes. If I send it to them, they're not yeah. going to read it. So I'm going to walk in with my athlete if I feel like there is an important message that needs to be sent if we're trying to clear somebody back to sport. And I'm going to say, this is where we're at. This is what we're working on. These are my concerns. And I go with them to their appointments at times because our model allows us to be able to do that if I get it on the schedule far enough in advance. I, I went to AOJ to watch Cole. Like when he first yeah. got back onto the mat to start sparring again, I went to AOJ, I sat there and I watched him spar for an hour in a comp class. Like I got to be able to do those things. And we do a lot of that yeah. collaboration with athletic trainers at local universities at 
high school coaches that, um, are, you know, around here that have our, the athletes that we work with, like we try to promote, or they can, or the biggest thing for us is the strength and conditioning coaches that are in the gyms that we're at. We literally get to walk them yeah. over to them, hand them off and be like, this person is good for X, Y, and Z. Maybe stay away from this, go a little lighter on that. But by all means, do your thing. And you guys, you, you know best, you're the expert, go do the rest of it. But these are just some things to keep in mind. So like we have a collaborative, open minds and communication approach to how we do things. And you got you said you are you're out of network, right, for most health healthcare providers. So when people are coming to you, they're electing to pay an out of pocket fee, similar to if you were working with a personal trainer, right? Correct. And so what is on I'm just curious, on on like the business side of things, what does that allow you to control as the business owner? Whereas partnering with uh insurance providers and running things through their processing would limit you. Insurance companies get paid more money when you utilize less services. So they're not the, me, the patient, me as the patient. Yeah. So I'm gonna, so that's what we explain okay. to them. It's like they they make money if they if you work with people less if you utilize less services. So they're not going to be proactive. Wow. So uh, so I would tell the patient like, look, you're going to go somewhere. They may be good for the first six to eight visits and they're going to have to request authorization and you might be on hold for two or three weeks and put on hold and you're in the middle of your care before you get back to where you yeah. need to be because you're trying to get an authorization. The way we do things, we are not beholden to what an insurance company authorizes or doesn't. As long as we're doing what is right by the, by our license, that's all that we're held to and that's it. So um, I, I think that that's a big piece of it is that we get to dictate your care with what's right for you, not with what an insurance company thinks is right for them. And the second piece is the individualization and the sports specificity. If somebody comes in and says, look, you can go down the street to the place that takes your insurance. Hopefully they have somebody that knows something about jujitsu. Chances are they don't. But what we do is we're going to make all, everything that we do with you individualized to you and your injury and to the sport or the activity you're trying to get back to. And that's kind of the biggest selling point. I love that. I, I've always... I've always been curious about that, actually, because I've been on both sides of it. I've been where I, you know, I elect to go with a certain facility because of an individual there. But I've also used provided healthcare before. Uh, I can only speak on my experience that provided uh, referred care is horrendous, horrendous. And you brought up an interesting point earlier, which I think is it's I just hadn't thought about this like the, like it before. But when you look around the facility that you're at, you kind of see who else is there. It really is powerful when you're surrounded by athletes doing athletic things, trying to get back to a sport versus being in a waiting room with really sick people that are trying to just get themselves out of pain and back to a place where, you know, they could, for example, sit on the couch without being in pain. And that's their end goal It's like, get back to a sedentary lifestyle <laughs> and you're in there getting <laughs> care from these people. And it's a. Uh, it's no, you know, no harm, no foul to them because the system is structured such that it produces that, right? I don't think that there's malicious uh, physical therapists who just don't care about how people are, right? I really don't think that that's what it is. It's more that the system is structured such that they have limitations and they're trying to cycle 200 people through in a day. You know, you have the, you have the ability to work with a few people in a day, charge them what it's actually worth to take care of your body. They benefit tenfold and then you're not limited. That's a much better setup. And I think when you really care about your body, if you have the ability to do so, it behooves you to pay for the services that you really need because in the long run, you're gonna spend less time working and more time doing the things that you love to do. 
Well, and at the end of the day, a lot, like most times it ends up being cheaper to see somebody like us because you get better faster. And then the other question is how much is your time worth? Do you want to go somewhere three times a week for eight to 12 weeks? Or do you want to see us once a week for six weeks and be back to where you need to be? And oftentimes that's how a lot of these things work out. I mean, again, post-surgical stuff's different, but I I do want to touch on like the part that you mentioned about going to physical therapists in network. I don't blame the physios whatsoever. It's a choice for them to work there, but everybody has to make a living. The model is the problem. And they're not able to individualize things because the model is not set up for them to be able to do that. And I think like a lot of the physios that work in insurance practices, it's really hard to find somebody that gets sports and gets athletics and can get you all the way back. At some point, they get you to that point and then they need a little bit more because they either don't have time resources, they don't have a weight heavier Mm -hmm. than 20 pounds, they don't have the space to be able to do sprinting, running, grappling, whatever it is. That's when they need to have the ability to look outside themselves, check the ego out the door and say, I'm going to help you find somebody that is going to help you get all the way back. And we do that a lot with a lot of people that reach out to us that aren't good fits for us. I'm like, look, we can start seeing you now, but honestly, go use your insurance for the first couple of months because they're going to be able to get you to a place where you need to be and then come back to us when you're ready to go. And if your PT wants to communicate with us, like we'll have a collaborative approach and we'll be able to help kind of have that transition be handed off back to us. Because I want what's best for the person. Because I think at the end of the day, I'll always give up. I tell our PTs, I tell people all the time, I will always give up short-term gain for the long-term benefit of everybody who's involved in, the, in whatever it is that we're doing. I love that. That I mean, that's an you know, honesty in that regard <laughs> just speaks volume about who you are and what you guys are running and how, how you take care of the people that come in and see you. If uh, if we can touch for a moment on modalities, you, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, having the resources to be able to do what we want to do with the athlete and and treat them how we want. There's so many things out there that uh, I think when people get hurt, they do the WebMD thing and then they start looking (laughs) and they go, I need stim. I need blood flow restriction. You know, I need to be doing acupuncture. I need massage. I need cold plunge. I need sauna. I I mean, the laundry list of things is endless at this point of different things that people can do. Massage guns, trigger point balls. What are some of your most reached for uh, modalities when you're looking to get someone back that are kind of like big bang for your buck, things that you value in the recovery for uh, definitely ACL given the specialization, but also mm-hmm. some of the other injuries that you see that are joint related. I, I would say the, the biggest game changer in my practice, I've been doing this for 13 years uh, with my post-surgical and my kind of more acute management of injuries was blood flow restriction. It has been just really? an absolute game changer. Yeah, I mean, the ability to be able to just kind of as a general like summary of what it does, it literally allows you to be able to have a physiologic effect on building muscle and being able to like help your body produce more growth hormone and growth factor to be able to build muscle again without having to stress an injured tissue or injured joint. So I can have somebody do a movement wow. that's 20% of their one rep max and have a very similar effect as it, as if they were doing a five five by five or a five rep max, like single leg squat or something along those lines, as long as I'm choosing my exercises wisely. So it allows you to wow. prevent or like slow down the process of like deconditioning and like detraining. That's a big deal for us. So like with somebody who has it was an ACL or who's in the first eight weeks post-op, that quad wants to shut down. It's very difficult to keep that quad on. So the combination of electrical stim, so neuromuscular electrical stimulation to really like try to stimulate as many muscle fibers as possible, motor units as possible, 
combined with something like blood flow restriction where we can like take the loads away from the joint and the graft to allow it to kind of heal physiologically mm-hmm. has been an absolute game changer in speeding up that earlier stage of the process to get back to the things that are a little bit more fun, a little bit more on their feet. If we can nerd out for a second on this, because I find this really interesting. So if you take a, a joint, we'll stick on the knee here, uh, partially because of the specialization, partially because I feel like there's a lot of people that tweak their knees uh, doing jujitsu. Yeah. Uh, you take a knee that, that flexes and extends, you, you do something to the ligament, it's compromised. This now affects the contractile force of the quad muscle and the range of motion of the joint. Is that so far correct? So yeah, so it, it, depending okay. on what the injury is, if it affects the quad's ability to activate fully, it will affect its ability to maintain the strength of the levels of contraction it has. So is this a neuro like is this a neurological issue in that the the brain can't get the muscle to recruit enough fibers to cause the contraction to do the joint action? And so by doing the blood flow restriction and the stim at the same time, you're forcing those those fibers to get involved where they otherwise wouldn't? How is that whole system working? Like, what is so powerful about blood flow restriction in that rehabilitative process that you might not see? If I mean, I can I can imagine how it would be super bad if you just gave someone twenty percent of their one rep max and said squat this right. Yeah. They're going to be on the ground in a second. But what is it about that? What's going on on like a muscular level, on a, on a fiber level, and on that brain body kind of neuromuscular connection level? So when you put the blood flow restriction cuff on, you are restricting 80% of the blood flow. So it includes 80% of the blood flow going into the limb, and it, and it creates a pooling effect below the level of the cuff that doesn't allow hardly any blood flow to come back up. So basically what your signal you're sending to your brain is like, my, that area needs more resources. And we need to send okay. in more resources. That's where the release of growth hormone, growth factor, things along those lines that help help to build muscle the same way we would if we were doing heavier resistance training. So that's kind of that physiologic part of it from that standpoint. Touching on what you were mentioning with like an injury or like a post-op, post-operative swelling will have a reciprocal inhibition inhibition effect on the quad's ability to activate because that swelling makes it difficult for the knee to fully extend. The quad is a knee extensor. So if you can't fully extend your knee, it's going to be very difficult for you to get a very, very like robust contraction of the quad. So as we gotcha. work so on getting the... knee extension, like with, let's say I work on somebody on the table and we get like, you know, hyperextension, we get them to be able to contract their quad. The way we get that to carry over is now by applying blood flow restriction training to take advantage of that window where we've allowed the quad a better environment to be able to, to act. And then now I don't have to load the joint because we're using the blood flow restriction gotcha. to protect and preserve the graft in the case of an ACL reconstruction. So you're, you're mobilizing the joint, then cuffing it then taking that occlusion and further moving it back and forth. Well, you're getting them to do this, right? So you're, they're calling on the muscle now to do the flexion extension. The benefit is they don't have to be under a squat rack. They don't have to be under heavy loading. They don't have to be in extreme ranges, right? With their, cause even so, I mean, coming off an injury, if you're 150 pounds and you do a lunge, there's a ton of weight on that mm-hmm. joint, right? So this allows for that process to happen without the loading. Yeah, because sometimes either post-surgical or post-injury, we just can't load the joint. The joint needs to have time to be allowed to go through the healing process. And so 
but we still want to be able to load the soft tissue without putting mechanical stress and mechanical load on the joint. So the perfect example would be if I want to load up the quads, I'll have somebody do some like quad extension seated on the edge of a table with a three pound cuff on their ankle. Yep. And then I'll have them do a straight leg raise. And then I'll have them do like a single leg calf raise. And then I'll have them do a hamstring curl on a physio ball. And we're doing 75 reps yep. in each of them with the blood flow restriction cuff on. That's going to stress the tissue. But none of those things I just described are going to stress the joint if we're choosing the right exercises and prescribing it accordingly. I, I, so <laughs> it makes me think, uh, lifetime as a weightlifter, I've been in a, a, athletic training facility since I was 15 years old as a competitive skier. And ever since then, it's just, I've, I'm on a training regimen 24 seven. It's just my life. And from competing in Olympic weightlifting to training specifically for grappling, it's something that I love to do. But if I'm being completely transparent at 34 years old, having been on six day a week, high intensity training splits for Olympic weightlifting, and then on two to three day a week splits coupled with athletic anaerobic conditioning, trying to get better and better and better at jujitsu. It has worn on me, and I hate to admit that. I really do. But the reality is getting underneath a squat rack now after you know, myofascial release and warming up and activating and preparation and getting my brain on board and then loading the bar and then ascending the weight and then getting to the working set, right? It is a lot on the body. And when you're also doing an unpredictable sport like we identified earlier where someone's acting against you and you have no ability to predict, right? I can predict what happens in the training hall on a Saturday morning strength training session very well. Yeah, I cannot predict on a Monday noon class who's going to show up, how much they're going to weigh, how tall they're going to be, how fast they are in their skill level. It's a complete dice roll every time. So when I hear about something like blood flow restriction training and its ability to produce to to do physiological responses as if you're at a higher intensity but you're not why are we not all utilizing this type of training uh for longevity purposes like this this sounds incredible if i can go into the gym right now load up with a bfr cuff and then go through super sub max exercises but get a close to max payoff should we be doing this more this is so the, the caveat to all of this is it doesn't replace resistance strength training. That's still the gold standard for building muscle. This is the, mm. the, the tool, uh, the actual tool of BFR is it bridges the gap when you physically cannot do resistance strength training because a joint post-surgical gotcha. whatever doesn't allow you to. Now, to okay. tie, kind of like tie it together to what you just mentioned, we use BFR to manage training loads as well. So if we have an athlete whose training volume is high, 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 and they want to just say, you know what, I want a rest day. We're not going to tell them to do nothing. We're going to say, well, let's bust out the BFR. Let's do some super low-level stuff. But let's still get yeah. you moving and continue to get your blood flowing and your joints moving. Work on things that are intentional and matter. But do it in a way where we're not overly overall taxing your system in a way that your body can't recover for. So it's, it's a great way to be able to do like active recovery or manage training loads without having to actually just completely rest altogether. I'm super glad that you brought this up because I'd love to talk about this. Uh, this idea of like active mobility and active recovery. I When I was um, a T-Rex coach with Equinox, we did a workshop with a guy named Michelle Dalcourt. Are you familiar with him? He's a no. San Diego guy. Uh, he inv are, Have you ever seen a Viper? Viper. It's uh, a piece of equipment. It's like a cylinder yes. with two handles on it. Mm -hmm. So he, was, he created the Viper and then the um, Institute of Motion. It's a center here down in San Diego. We did this workshop with him. 
was really interesting. And one of the big takeaways was trying to build work in days into your training regimen. So basically having, instead of just having a rest day where you're kind of like, I'm not working out today, I'm just going to sit around and do nothing. As much as you plan the intensity of your work days, you actually plan the intensity of your rest days as well. And you try to do it very proactively so that those days in between are very pragmatic. You're working on things that you might forego in a strength training session because they're not kind of, you know, top of the list items. They're not going to give you the biggest return, but they're super important to joint health, integrity, durability, longevity, those kind of things. Uh, it takes quite a bit of discipline because it's a lot of the elements that people identify with with high intensity exercise and the feeling and everything are not present because it almost feels like just straight homework. But maybe you can unpack uh, what an active mobility day is, what active recovery is, why we should be doing this. Um, and, and then maybe if on the tail end of this, we can tie that into jujitsu because I, I really love this concept. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. You know, what we do a lot is like, if we program for somebody like three or four days a week, one or two of those days are going to be one of those active recovery type days. And so the way we approach it would be something along the lines of identifying where there are, do you have a, like we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, do you have asymmetries in ankle dorsiflexion, hip rotation, thoracic spine mobility? Things that are not only important to an athlete, but they're important to just a human to be able to do day-to-day -day things, right? So we identify a lot of those things. And these active mobility days, these active recovery days are days to work on those things because A, they complement your life and the ability to, talk, to do things on a day-to-day -day basis. And B, they complement the tasks that you're going to do on your heavier days. Because I don't know about you, but if I can't dorsiflex my ankle past five degrees, it's going to be very hard for me to do a deep barbell back squat on the day where I'm actually yeah. trying to load my quads and load my lower extremity. So we work on those things very intentionally on those days. So I'll design it something for somebody where they'll do, we do a lot of, you know, functional range conditioning. Yeah. FRC. So FRC, we do, we do a ton of FRC yeah. principled stuff. So like we'll do a lot of pails and rails, a lot of end range holds. We'll do a lot of contract, relax end range type work. And we'll program it in a way where the intensity is scaled by the person because they can self-select what positions they put themselves in, whether they want to work mid-range and be very, very good at, ma at mastering mid-range, or do we want to be more aggressive and go to the end-range positions? And we'll program those days a couple days a week for them to do it. And we program that before their sessions because I want to, I want to prime their central nervous system and I want them to be almost like on the brink of a sweat or into a little bit of a sweat before they actually do the workout. Because I think it's very valuable to be primed and ready to go before they go into a workout as well. What is... Yeah, can you explain that a little bit? What What is the importance of heat or um, this idea of being primed? Why should someone on a day that would otherwise be seen as rest, why should they get ready to do something so, quote, easy? The, the priming of the nervous system is not as important on the recovery day as it is on like a pre-training like day, but it is important yeah. for you to be able to learn, like to use... Because you're, if you're going to have a training day and you know you're going to be lifting heavy with some bad spots, whatever it is, it's very hard for you to take that intensity and also apply that to the things, the little things that matter, like working on joint mobility, working on like yeah. tissue extensibility, flexibility, things like that. So if we have a recovery day or an active mobility kind of rest day, you have the ability to put some intensity behind it to kind of get it in a little bit of a sweat without having to worry about ruining your performance or hindering your performance later on in the day. So then, but you're still able to actually take that intentional like nature of the way we, the way we do our training and apply it to something that is not sexy and is not going to give you this like 
big pump and this big release of like serotonin, but like at the same time, you're going to be able to take the gains that you do on a week to week basis and apply it to your performance to kind of make you a better athlete and human as a whole. Yeah. It's so hard to get people to connect those dots uh, going Mm -hmm. forward, you know, to really respect the time in between, because like you said, it's not sexy. It's not, you're not going to get done with the active mobility day and take your shirt off and just feel great that you put in this epic workout. It's going to be hard. I think that's Mm -hmm. another thing that people, uh, misrepresent is they, they perceive these active recovery days as like I put in quotes easy, but working on end range mobility is very difficult. If, Mm -hmm. if you're doing any kind of isometric at the end range of a joint and, and maybe I should explain this a little bit. So if someone is thinking of like a squat, you, you have your standing position and then your super deep squat position working around in that deep position can be very uncomfortable just by itself, let alone putting intention behind that and timing and duration and loading and all this stuff. So it ends up being uh, much of a challenge. I think some of the hardest stuff that I've done in a training setting outside of, you know, max effort days are like replicating some of Kelly Starrett's mobility drills on the floor where you're just Mm -hmm. laying there and, and you're doing these things where you're really trying to build mobility. It's agonizing. And in some cases, boring. And that combination of boring and agony is just like <laughs> so hard for people to get on board with, which brings me to my next question. When you have someone like I would imagine with Cole, you guys are working this kind of stuff into his recovery coming back from that injury. So an athlete may have high motivation, but how do you paint that picture for someone like that uh, to value off mat time at all and then let alone to put some of this stuff into play? Yeah, I, mean, I think the conversation will be different with a Cole versus a hobbyist, right? So with somebody like Cole, who's yeah. a high-level competitor, it's all about painting the picture in a way that makes sense to them and resonates with them as far as their performance goes. So if I tell if yeah. I tell somebody like Cole, like, hey, what we found was that your hip internal rotation was limited and your hip adductors were a little bit weaker on the left side than the right side. What I would say is like when you're playing guard and you're actually trying to use your legs to be able to control the, the your opponent – and be able to gain position or to change position, whatever the case may be. If your left leg is not doing as much as we need your right leg, as your right leg is doing, it's going to be very difficult for you to gain a physical advantage when you're on the mats playing yeah. guard. Or So I relate it to something that they've already told me is a little bit of a struggle or is an important thing for them. For the hobbyist, if it's somebody that's like, they go three or four days a week, but they have a desk job, you better believe that your ability to, to sit at a desk for eight hours, your thoracic spine's like this all day, and then you get on a mat and you have to rotate, uh, extend, and do all these things for your thoracic spine. I want you to go sit for eight hours and then get on the mat immediately after and not prime yourself and be ready to go. It's not going to feel good. And you're not going to perform no. very well, even if, you're, if, even if you're not doing it from a competitive standpoint. So being able to work on these things allows you to be a better human being because it's going to bleed into your day-to-day life as a hobbyist, but it's also going to make it so that it's easier for you to assimilate to the demands of the sport that you're trying to do that you love to do without putting yourself in a position to overload your tissue. Cause at the end of the day, like injury is very simple. It is essentially when the load and the demands that you're placing on your tissue is greater than the, t- the tissue's capacity to handle. It's as simple as that. So if you yeah. can continue to build the capacity of your tissue and your loads are always below it and your loads are always chasing the capacity, you're just not going to get hurt in the same way that you would if, if your capacity was always lower than the load. I love that view of it. And it does, I, you know, I think within that, right, it's easy to forget that 
there's acute things that happen. Like if you and I are training and you shoot a double leg and you're really strong and powerful and, and we go back and I go to plant my hand and it somehow ends up directly behind me and I land on my wrist, there's not really enough training that we could ever do to fully mitigate that from happening, right? It's such an acute event and there's so much weight and, and force and mass moving that that's going to happen. But not every single thing that happens every single time you train is that severe. So many of so many times that people sustain injuries in training, it is preventable. It is because it's a a small movement where exactly that happened, right? And this is where I think that the general like general views around training need a another disruption. And and again, why I think that something like what you're doing with the the way that you are looking at physical therapy and strength training as more family than separate like distant cousins it's so important because the strength training almost should never happen until you've placed enough focus on getting the tissue and the joints ready for the thing that they're going to do and unfortunately that might take some time but everyone is so identified with the exertion level stronger, faster, bigger, like, you know, all these things, it's very easy to go in a gym and look at other people working out and go, well, I can do this today. I want to do more the next day. And I want to do more the next time. Oh, I'm making progress because now I'm doing things heavier than I was before. But our bodies don't love that. You know, (laughs) there's so many components that need to like get up to speed with that so that, so that we can go and do the things we love to do. Well, the term that you're 100% right. And the term that we hear all the time is injury prevention. And I don't know about you. I love pails and rails. I don't know a pails and rails, a pail and rail that's going to stop my elbow from dislocating if somebody has me in an R bar and I don't have it. It's just not going to happen. Right. It's just hard. I'm not going to prevent that. But at the same time, I like the term injury risk reduction. Because if we can just decrease yeah. the likelihood yeah. of it happening, so because you're more prepared, you're in a better position to be able to manage these loads and this the, the, the violentness of this sport. That's all we can do at the end of the day. But like, like you said earlier really well, you can't prevent everything from happening, but you can make it really difficult for it to happen if you do all the right things on your own time. I think those those two phrases, injury risk reduction, injury prevention, you can't prevent injury. You can hedge your bets, but that's a complete misnomer. That's not something that is real you, because that would require that you have an ability to predict the future and you know everything about everyone who's ever going to come into contact with you. And that's just not the truth. You no. could be a surfer and you could be a really good, the worst injury I ever had surfing was on the very last wave of a, a big day, but I was on a half foot wave and I just kicked my board off from under me, snapped back, came right back and I had to get stitches right under my eye. One inch Jesus. higher and I probably would have lost my eye. Yeah. But that's like, it's it, injury is random. There's nothing that you, I can't no. go do cheek exercises to prevent <laughs> a fin from slicing my face open. And sometimes I feel like, especially with social media, injury prevention is a trendy idea for understandable reasons, right? I would love to prevent injury from happening. That's not a thing though, but you can, like you said, reduce the risk of it happening possibly after accepting that the sports that you're doing are crazy in and of themselves, right? Jiu-Jitsu is a nuts sport. The fact that you don't get injured every time, it, you know, in and of itself is <laughs> impressive. It's crazy. 
Yeah, and the, and the thing is, too, is, like, we talked earlier about expectations. Like, I'm not going to be a person's best friend and tell them what they want to hear if it's the wrong thing to tell that person. So we, we'll always manage expectations. And if that person doesn't want to hear it at that moment, that's okay. And I'm okay with that as long as I'm giving the advice that I feel like is in that person's best interest. But at the end of the day, you know, something has to resonate enough with somebody for them to take action and do something about it. And unfortunately, a lot of times people aren't patient enough and have the discipline enough yeah. to work on the things that are not sexy, even though they, they're super important and they matter. And we just try to convey that as much as we can to people and hope that over time, enough people will say that to them or they'll see it enough, have enough touch points with it. Well, they'll start like treating it like <clears throat> with the importance that it actually deserves. Can we talk a little bit about age? Because that's something that's specific to jujitsu and especially on the hobbyist level, you go into any academy, you're going to have a range. You got sometimes there's guys in their seventies that are just getting their black belts and they're still kicking. And it's awesome. It's super motivating to see them in there. Sometimes you got high school wrestlers that are looking for something to stay active in the off season. And then the whole spectrum of people in between. So when we're thinking about injury and we're thinking about sport and whether you're a hobbyist or professional, what happens to our bodies as we age and how does that affect our ability to recover? So I think as we get older, we tend to be put because we have real life problems and real life um, you know, obligations and demands that we have to, to focus on. We don't have the ability to be a 16 year old that's in high school and all they, all they have to focus on is being a basketball player on the varsity team and trying to get a scholarship in college. And they don't have to worry about paying the bills right. and all that stuff. So I think as we get older, we have those real life demands that sort of take up a lot of that time. Right. It's just, like, we know it's just basically adulting. Right. So like, I think what happens is, is we, we, we slowly lose tissue capacity. If you're not taking the time to continue to keep the capacity where we want it to be. So it's like, if your joint has this much range of motion, but you're only doing things that use this on a day-to-day -day basis, what happens on the margins is very difficult to keep because you're not, you're not maintaining that. You're not so that whole use it or lose it type thing. You're not, you're not in that in, right. in a position to be able to use that full range of motion anymore. And so I think what we, we tend to try to focus on a lot with the, the older population, the hobbyists that really want to do jujitsu and just be out there as much as possible is try to extend the margins so that or to make the margins smaller where they are using a larger a larger percentage of that joint's capacity or that tissue's capacity, and then just make them really strong within their available range and continue to build it up to kind of reduce the risk of something happening. And that's what we kind of hope for as we do some, some of those types of things. So that's a, that's such a great point. Just given, I like painting the picture of this kind of like the office worker, right? Who's going in and they're, they're trained jujitsu too, because I, I applaud every single person that does that. I think it's awesome that they're finding an outlet for their, their physical health and their mental health to stay safe and to help mitigate the risk of injury over time. What do you feel like should be the pecking order for this person when they get to the Academy? Because you and I both know on a, on a professional level, the warm up and the preparation is so important. And if you're any professional team anywhere, you're putting a big emphasis on this with your athletes because they're valuable and you can't have a guy get injured getting ready to work out, right? It's unacceptable. Yeah. So there's a ton of effort put into the preparation, bringing people up to speed mentally, physically, physiologically, and then doing the work, whatever the intensity may be that day. If you're someone who has a desk job, if you're someone who's running their own company, if you've got a ton of kids at home, whatever it is, and you're 
carving out the time to go and train jujitsu a couple times a week. What should they be doing when they get there? How, what is the most important thing for them to prioritize in their body's preparation to do exactly that and to mitigate the risk of a pr otherwise preventable injury on the mat? So I think step one is one of the more challenging things, and that's to actually have a plan of attack that you're going to actually stay on top of and do. That's number one. And yep. make it reasonable to the point where you'll be consistent with doing it every time. That's number one. That's usually what people, they set this really high bar and say, I'm going to do 30 minutes every single time I go in. It's not always going to happen. You just got to be, you have to set the bar a little lower at first and then build your way up once yep. you demonstrate you can be consistent with. That's number one. Number two is I like starting proximal and working our way out. So for me, thoracic spine and hip rotations are probably the three, the two areas I would say to focus on more. I think having a lot of resilience in thoracic rotation, thoracic extension and flexion and having a lot of resilience in hip internal and external rotation, and whether that's end range control, whether that's being able to control the joint through its largest range of motion, that's whether you're manipulating, well, however you want to manipulate that specific to jujitsu, those are probably the two areas that I would say are the most important where I would start. And then I would work outwards once I have that proximal base kind of set up from there. So if we, uh, if we layman's term those two things, right, thoracic mobility and, and hip mobility or hip rotations, what is, uh, what's an example of something that someone could do if they wanted to, and, and I like what you said a lot about the time frame here, because you're right, it's common. People go, I'm going to change the way I do. I'm going to do 100 things. Let's assume you only have 10 minutes. That's a, by the time you leave work, you get in your car, you get to the academy, you check in, you change, you don't have 30 minutes, you have 10 what is an example of, of taking care of your thoracic spine? What's an example of taking care of your hips in that rotation? Because like you said, those are going to show up no matter what. That's jujitsu yeah. 101 is those two parts of the body getting twisted against your will. <laughs> yeah, this, this, is the one, this is the one time where I'll say like the, you know, YouTube will be your friend with this. But like, like, a th like a thoracic, for the thoracic spine, I would say like a thread the needle where you're on like your hands and knees or you're in like a child's pose position and you're reaching underneath as far as you can, yep. and you're going up towards the ceiling as far as you can, that would be a good way to kind of incorporate just a baseline, basic level of thoracic rotation. Same thing with if you're on your hands and knees, you can do the same two movements where you reach underneath and go up over the top. Okay. Um, you can also do something along the lines of an open book. You lay on your side, you have your hands stacked, and then you're opening one yep. while the other arm stays on the ground. Those are two really good ways to just prime your thoracic spine to rotate, and it's really easy. It should take you less than five minutes to do both of those. That would be like a good jumping off point. I would say the hip rotation side of things, if you look up hip 90-90, that's one of my favorite positions for jiu-jitsu athletes. I feel like it's so applicable to be in that 90-90 position. You have one leg in front, that's sort of like the inside of the knee is open up towards the ceiling. The leg in the back, the outside of the knee is open up towards the ceiling, and they're in 90-degree angles. And just working on playing around with first, honestly, people make this really complex and complicated. I would just work on being comfortable being in that position, first and foremost. Because it's not an easy position to get used to if you've never done it before. So get comfortable being there first, and then you can start to add maybe transitioning. Where and what I mean by that is, you have the right left leg forward and the right leg back. Then maybe you move on trying to like um, simultaneously move to where you have the right leg forward and the left leg back, but do it where you're sort of like leaning with your hands behind you and allowing your hips to rotate side to side. So you're getting pure rotation on both sides. That's that's a really easy like low barrier to entry way to start that off. I'm going to give myself 110% credit here because when I got to training today, I did 
open books and arm circles. And then I did Let's the 1990s, actually. You know, it's unfair because I've been able to talk to you, John Amato, Mike Parkarski, and Heather Linden, who all work with combat athletes and have this conversation about what's the best thing to do. And I'm building quite the little, like, <laughs> based on how the body feels, how to prepare for the day. Uh, I really love that those two things, like that element of rotation, I think is something that people try and they go, oh, this feels horrible. This is hard. That I must be doing it wrong. It's hard because you have no rotation. Mm -hmm. So it should be of the utmost importance that you try to instill some of that into your preparation. And that's, look, I, if someone's in half guard and they're trying to pass, your hips are going this way and they're trying to pry your head the other. Like it's, if your thoracic's not going to rotate, something's going to rotate, mm -hmm. right? And if your hips aren't going to rotate, the rotation is going to come somewhere else because someone's acting against you. So if you're not prioritizing those things, that's how injury happens, right? It's the body goes where it does not want to, or <laughs> it doesn't think it can. Uh, what are your thoughts on, I asked Dr. John Amato this, and he had, he came from a wrestling background. We were talking about cervical spine preparation. I had some like stingers and he was saying, yeah, you know, like when we were in high school, we'd be doing uh, tripods and, you know, neck rolls and stuff like that. And he had pointed to the iron neck as being a really great introduction because it allows for isometric tension without uh, loading, like without mm -hmm. vertical loading on the actual disc. And I was thinking about that, and I, I had actually had an iron neck that I'd been using, but after our conversation, I realized, despite a, a whole career of doing this, I had been using it incorrectly. And since adopting these isometric holds in different angles and very, very slight rotation, I've noticed a big difference in how my neck feels. And I've since scrapped these kind of old-school 1980s uh, wrestling warm-ups where your, head is, your forehead is down and you're going through it because he said, look, even though you're working through these ranges, you're still creating compression. So if you have compression in your cervical spine, even if it doesn't hurt in the moment, you're still, you're taking something that has an issue and then you're further pressing it. So exactly. with regards to the cervical spine, do you share those sentiments? What are your thoughts on, on preparation for that? I, now we can assume that this avatar of the person that we've created that's warming up for jujitsu, uh, maybe they have good thoracic mobility and they know what that is but their neck's tweaked all the time, or they have a craning neck from working on their computer at their job, how should they prepare for and care for their neck in anticipation of no gi and gi jujitsu? I love the idea of the, the concept of time under tension. So a lot of times these areas that tend to get tweaked all the time, they're not big movers. They're not big physical muscles like a quad or a glute or something like that. They are muscles that need to be able to have endurance to be able to be on for a consistent basis throughout a long period of time. So I feel like a lot of times we'll do these, oh, hey, go ahead and do five second holds. And you're telling yeah. me that you're only going to be in positions that you're going to have to hold it for five seconds when you're on the mats doing things. You may be there for 35, 45, 60 seconds, two yeah. minutes, depending on how things are going. And so I like time under tension from the standpoint of like, apply a load that is fairly okay to be able to manage. But at the same time, you have to hold it for an extended period of time by maintaining, maintaining a positions. And then I would take the next step would be if I'm going to do isometrics where it's like here and here, here and here, yep. like those types of things where I'm neutral, then, then why don't we do some isometrics where I'm here now and you have to apply a load when you're more in a closed down position or more in a lengthened position here. Same mm. thing with rotating, like having isometrics in those positions. I like being able to manipulate the positions we put the neck in and still take the principles of an isometric and time, time under tension 
and use it to our advantage to build more resilience in the tissue. Is there compatibility with uh, like weighted neck extensions, headgear, stuff like that? Do you think that those are useful? And if so, where? I think if you're applying it from the standpoint of like more traditional strength, strength and conditioning principles, if you're going to do like periodization of it, I would, I think a lot of people don't periodize neck strengthening the way they would a quad or a lower extremity. Like why yeah. don't we do three sets of 12 or three sets of eight? If we're looking for more hypertrophy, why don't we do two sets of, or like five sets of five? If we want to look more strength and power, like we you, it, muscles, muscles, tissues, tissue, like you should treat it the same way. Right. So if you're going to periodize, you should periodize for your upper body the same way do you for your lower half. It's genius. It, it's so funny. It, I, in these conversations, I will hear something and like, it really does stop me in my tracks. And despite having had so many conversations in my lifetime about athletics, I had never thought about what you just said that you don't see, obviously look, if there's blunt trauma, if someone hits you in the yeah. quad with a baseball bat and you break your femur. Okay. <laughs> but you're right. You don't, you don't see, I, I'm just kind of like jogging my memory of, of, injuries that I've sustained uh, in skiing and soccer and martial arts. And then those that I've been aware of or clients that I've helped come back from stuff. It isn't the quad. It's not the whole glute. It's not the whole chest or pec muscle. It's not the abdomen or like your mid lats. It's these little things. It's the, it's the Achilles. It's the LCL. It's the ACL. It's cervical spine. It's, it's such small parts of this big body do you think that that's due to like our perception of strength training as just like a general, like why is it that these are undertrained and regularly injured? I, I think a lot of times people don't know how to address them or they don't know whether they should be addressing them or not. So it's kind of like the question you asked yeah. earlier. It's like, you don't know what you don't know unless you have the guidance of somebody that can help you kind of figure those things out. So it would be like me going downstairs and I, and I noticed the sound coming from my, the engine of my car. I have no background. I am probably the worst person you would ever want to go to when it came to a car. Issue. <laughs> you know, but like, that would be me like yeah. saying, well, I don't even know where to start. Like I wouldn't even know where to begin when it comes to that. And I think this is kind of the same thing. I mean, it's a, along the same lines from an analogy standpoint is that if you don't know that it's supposed to be important, how are you supposed to know to address it or how to even go about thinking about doing it? So I think it's finding somebody that can help you kind of figure that out. And that's where some of the education on social media and YouTube and all that comes in handy because there's just so much information out there. It could be a good and a bad thing. If, but if you can really curate good people to kind of search the things up for, I think that's a, that's a good jumping off point and starting off point. And I think the second piece of it, people get hurt because they don't have a plan. I think a lot of times if yeah. you have a plan that you are consistent, tissue craves consistency. And if you don't give it consistency and you don't consistently expose it to something, it's like getting out of bed and somebody, having somebody try to tell you to go do a max effort, like one rep max on the barbell back squat. Like, it's not going to feel good. You're not, you're not, there's nothing there. Right. Like, you're just asking for trouble. And it's the same thing with the principles of this. It's just you got to be consistent and have a plan that changes based on the capacity of your tissue. So, like, if you're doing, hey, I've been doing the same exercises for the last six years. They're probably not as effective anymore because you've been doing them for six years. You should maybe change it up a little right. bit and add different loads and you know change the range of motion, the positions, whatever the case may be. So those are the kind of some of the reasons why we see people fall into those traps. Yeah, I guess the the throwaway term, but the one you hear a lot is muscle confusion, which we know is like absurd, right? Like you don't, yeah. <laughs> you're not confuse your muscle. It didn't know what you were doing before, and now it knows what you're doing. But 
that idea of changing the stimulus that different stimuluses produce different outcomes. And if, yeah, if you're still doing workouts from when you were in high school, cause your friend's brother taught you guys what to do and it's three sets of 12 on bench press. That's all you're doing. And you're wondering why you like keep tearing your muscle or getting <laughs> injured. Maybe it's time to move through some different planes of motion and incorporate some different stuff. It's funny when you think about the, I go back to body types. I, I remember one time I was, uh, you know, the ESPN body issue. You ever yeah. see that? Yeah. So one time I was looking at that and I was like, Man, this is crazy because I had seen a ESPN Classics football game with like Alabama from 1983. I was watching this with my dad and they were talking they were describing the star tight end and he was 5'10, 185. And I was looking at this episode of The Body Issue and it had Gronkowski on the cover and I was like, did that guy I mean, this guy is a robot cut from just granite. I mean, the guy is insane. And then you go through and you look at all these volleyball players and, you know, uh, collegiate rowers, basketball players, cricket players, and you see how different everybody is built to the mechanics that the sport demands. And it's kind of funny to think about, like, we've, as a culture, kind of idolized the aesthetic of, like, the bodybuilder really brought that type of fitness into the forefront with guys like Arnold, right? These big muscles and training and it looked you thought that there was function behind that element it's almost as if we should all have super big necks really big joints and like no no muscle on our chest and then just kind of whatever quads and then super big knees and really thick ankles and if you had like a you know a michelin man that's kind of the ideal body when you're talking about longevity it's funny and we might, it may not be in our lifetime, but who knows what evolution is yeah. going to bring us. Right. Yeah. You look forward and everyone's just got like really durable, awesome joints with great tissue and that everyone's in there doing their prep work. Yeah. That's the world I would one day like to live in. Right. But maybe, you know, more conversations like this um, and, and more ears hearing that there's other methods to the madness behind yeah. just three sets of 10 strength training to get better at something. No, I totally agree. I think conversations like this are, are the jumping off point, and you just hope that the message gets across over time with enough people like us saying the right things and getting in front of the right people for that, that we're, they're ready to sort of take action on it. Do you, where do you feel like your, your role as a, a physical therapist and maybe other people in similar positions like yourself will start to I'll silo you to grappling? Like as, as grappling continues to grow the way that it is with things like ADCC, basically doubling size now every year when they're booking these events. I see this as a really good thing. I think that sport is great for any art because sport brings athleticism that creates examples. Examples bring more young eyes looking up going, I want to do that. Right. There's more kids now going, I want to be, do what Cole does. They never thought about you before. Yeah. That's going to help the growth of the sport, growth of the sport, more sponsors, better opportunity for athletes to earn incomes. And then it, you know, it can go on and on. I've debated this with some people who would feel that the other is better in keeping the art the art, but growth is good, in my opinion. With growth comes a need to train athletically and to start to think about things differently than just doing the thing. Like You can't just play tennis to become a better tennis player. You, you do need to play a lot of tennis, but you also have to train to be a better tennis player. And those that do will excel faster than those that don't. So what do you think the the strength and conditioning and the physical therapy, the kind of 
environment will look for or look like for these grappling athletes as this sport continues to get more competitive, more dominant, and grow more? I think this, the first step is to get out of the habit of trying to bucket everybody into traditional like football style training for strength and conditioning. I think that's a big issue that I run into with a lot of the guys that come in to see us is like I ask them what they're doing yeah. for their SNC. And it's all straight line, sagittal plane um, types of lifts. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you're not working frontal plane, if you're not working transverse with rotation, you're, you're missing the boat with two of the three main planes of motion that you're going to encounter as a grappler. So I think thinking three-dimensionally on every aspect of a person's body, whether that's in isolation or as a compound movement. So like simple little tweaks where we start to add like a medicine ball rotation to a rear foot elevated split squat. Or you have somebody do a side plank with a dip and a rotation. Like adding multiple yeah. planes of motion where they're doing it at the same time, that is the essence of what grappling and being on the mats is, is the ability to have to dissociate one part of your body from the other and still be really fucking strong in that position that the person's putting you in. Yeah, I was actually going to point to these the Bulgarian split squat where you have Cole with the loaded kettlebell and he's rotating mm -hmm. the outside. And I was thinking about that and I'm like, Huh, that you know, that doesn't have to be that much weight to get a really big payout on the knee because you're moving the weight across the midline, you're going on the outside of the knee. There's forces that are acting against the joint that wouldn't be acting there if you were just doing a regular Bulgarian split squat, regardless of the loading. So things like that, I, I wondered, you know, when I saw that post and like read about it, how much of this are you creating? And <laughs> you know, like how much of this are you taking your understanding of body mechanics and awareness? your developing understanding of grappling sports, ability to work with high-level people like Cole, who are no joke, right? These are the real deal people actually doing the sport and competing at the highest level. Are you creating exercises in a, a space where you didn't see them before? Or, or where are you pulling these from? Because that's not typically something that I think the average person would find if they're like, you know, lower body exercise for jiu-jitsu. It's going to be like lunges, back squat, step yeah. up. It's all going to be frontal, right? Where are those coming from? So I say a lot of, like, the, the first step is understanding strength and conditioning and understanding that you're not reinventing the wheel when it comes to push, pull, squat, hinge, and then in the case of, like, a lot of grappling athletes, like, the bear position or kind of being, like, all fours on the ground. Those are my mm -hmm. five, like, really big buckets that I'll pull from when it comes to yep. how we prescribe exercise. So, like, if you just think about what the example we just used, all I did was take a very foundational rear foot elevated split squat, a modified single leg loaded activity. And I just added a trunk component that changed the plane of motion that the upper body was doing relative to the lower body. So in essence, you're working on lower body strength, but at the same time, I'm using his upper body to manipulate getting deeper into the into that front hip to allow him to have mm -hmm. better hip internal rotation and have better thoracic and, and trunk rotation control at the same time. So if you think about a position right, you're on right. the ground where, somebody, where you're playing guard and somebody's on top of you, if your legs are pinned down and your chest is facing the ceiling, now all of a sudden you've learned how to rotate while your legs are on the ground. And so a lot of it is like understanding the sport and then just taking some of those principles and applying it to the tried and true tested methods that we know work because we have decades and decades of, of research telling us that, that it works. So yes, it's, it's recreating things and it's, and it's making up stuff, but a lot of it is based off of the tried and true things that we know are really effective. This is exactly why I think that we need more people like yourself and, and why I think people need to go to people like yourself because there is a difference between specificity for specificity's sake 
Like, oh, oh, you do jujitsu? We want you to do chest press from a dead bug position on your back because you're going to be on your back when you're doing jujitsu. And unfortunately, that's what you see a lot of. People go, mm-hmm. oh, you do this? Well, then we're going to replicate that in like some super weird way. And, oh, you do, you hip out? Well, here, hold a plate and hip out because now it's resistance plus a hip out. That doesn't apply to the sport. But you take your professional understanding, the, the rigor that you've gone through academically to get to where you are, to do what you do, plus the understanding of the sport, and now you actually are creating specificity because that is something that the joints are going to do on the mat when Cole's rolling that actually makes sense. But you're, like you say, you're not reinventing the wheel. It's not a crazy exercise, not standing on one hand with, you know, like (laughs) doing something stupid that makes no sense. It's, it's principles that have existed, but they're being molded to something specific. And I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I hope that like training can evolve to a place where that's kind of the norm and not the outlier. For sure. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I think sports specificity gets confused as, like you said, it has to look like the sport, like aesthetically and visually. But sports, it's not, and that's really not what it is. Sports specificity is applying the sport, that sports stimulus to the person's tissue to allow them to have the ability to maintain and withstand the demands of that sport. So, like, that's really yes. what you hit the nail on the head. A lot of times, these things just don't look good on Instagram, so they're not going to get clicks. But if right. somebody's standing on a BOSU ball, balancing a barbell in one hand, and they're citing the fucking Declaration of Independence, that's going to that's gonna look really good. Yeah. I, I don't know why I threw in the Declaration of Independence on that one, but I couldn't think of anything else. No, but, no it's good. But, that, but that's going to look good on social media, and unfortunately, people are going to do the things that are going to get clicks and likes and shit. Yeah. No, I said the one you had, um, you were doing like some reactive work with Cole where he had a like a resistance band attached to his ankle right on an elevated surface and you're releasing the band and letting his mm-hmm. muscle yeah. react to the release and I'm like god that's such a good exercise but then you look at it it's like it's that's not like a trending exercise right it's it's not the coolest looking exercise but man is that a good exercise for a grappler because so much of the time someone's grabbing your limb and pulling it I mean that's an arm drag mm-hmm. to a back t- that's Exactly that, right? Your arm goes like this, they cup your tricep, they take your back. If your shoulder can't respond to them tugging it when you're not expecting it, because grappling is all about timing, right? I want you to not think that I'm going to arm drag you. That's how I arm drag you. So everything is about your joint reacting acutely to a change in speed, stimulus, force, resistance, friction, whatever. And so little exercises like that, although they look so simple have such a big payout for the actual athlete doing the actual thing. But they're not well, the thing that's going to trend, right? It's not going to get a million views because mm-hmm. it's not like the sexiest looking exercise. No, 100%. You just, you just hope that it gets in front of the people that are actually prescribing the exercises and not the person that really, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. Like there's a guy on, on social media, I think his handle is a Curated Mobility. And him and I talk mm-hmm. all the time on there his stuff is fantastic. And he does a lot of this like loaded, really reactive, like ballistic, like high intensity type stuff where somebody's at an end range of motion and it is super applicable, those principles. And we, both of us do a lot of those kinds of things because it's applicable to this sport. And you have to just, you you have to just be able to check your ego and check everything else at the door. And there's a lot of PTs that'll say, well, I'm a PRI therapist or I'm a manual therapist or I'm a this. It's like, you know, I'm just a fucking physical therapist, man. 
Like at the end of the day, I want to serve the people that are coming into my doors. And if they come into my doors and tell me that, that, that their goal is to run, I'm going to try to do things to help them run better. If they tell me that their goal is yep. to get off the toilet, I'm going to do things that are going to help them get off the toilet. But it just, all that matters to me is that that person's goals and their activities and sports are their needs are being met from that standpoint. And we, we just want to do that for everybody that comes in our door. Well, if, if you got to get into the doors, Ignite is a great place to start. The show notes will have all the links to everything, ways to contact and uh, and reach out. Because I, like I said, I think that more people need to know about this as an option and an immediate option when they face injury. Because it, it's the best way to get back to the sports that you love to do without wasting the maximum amount of time doing it. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on, man. It's It's been a fantastic time. I knew I'd look forward to this conversation and uh, thank you so much for being here, Ziad. No, man, really appreciate the opportunity. I'm, I'm just always, always good to geek out with people who, who get it and just yes. love it. And just it's, it's like this hour and a half just kind of flew by, and it was amazing. So I really appreciate you making this available to Every time. somebody like me. Absolutely, brother. Thank you. Likewise, man. Now, Have a good hang- one.